What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. This week we bring you From Bridgerton to Peaky Blinders, historic houses in film and TV, made in partnership with World Monuments Fund Britain. In this insightful conversation, we're joined by Nell Hudson, actress known for her roles in Victoria and Outlander, Julianne Robinson, director of the smash hit Bridgerton, and Sally Ambrose, head of marketing and visitor experience at Chatsworth House. Hosted by John Darlington, Executive Director of World Monuments Fund Britain, our guests delve into the importance of filming in historic houses, their personal experiences working in them, and the creative challenges of bringing these iconic structures to life on screen. This engaging and informative discussion on the intersection of history, art and entertainment was recorded on the 30th of March 2021. Hello everyone. My name is John Darlington. I'm delighted to welcome you to this special event organised in partnership with Intelligence Squared. Now, for those of you who don't know, World Monuments Fund is a charity which champions the conservation of exceptional works of architecture and monuments for people. It could be any type of building, a church, a power station, a sculpture, or an ancient rock carving, a cultural landscape, or a historic garden but you can guarantee it will be special. We work with partners and local communities to ensure that endangered sites in their care have a long-term future. Our contribution may include funding, but it's just as likely to be in the form of advice on conservation management, on capacity building, advocacy, or on helping with educational or interpretive initiatives. Part of the World Monument Fund mission is to engage people in heritage and to tell the story of places which have been shaped by history, why they're relevant today and indeed their importance for the future. And today we're inviting you to go behind the scenes and discover the secrets of period dramas and the historic houses that help to bring them to life. I'm therefore absolutely delighted to have with me three wonderful panellists who have extensive experience working on period dramas. Firstly, joining us from not very far away from me in England is Nell Hudson, who's an English actress best known for her roles as Leary Mackenzie in the television drama Outlander and Nancy Skerritt in the period drama Victoria. Welcome, Nell. Hello. 
And all the way from Los Angeles, we have Julianne Robinson. And Julianne is a Golden Globe and BAFTA-nominated television and film director who recently directed and produced the hit Netflix series Bridgerton. Hello, Julie. Hi, it's great to be here. And lastly, but by no means least, joining us from the beautiful county of Derbyshire in England is Sally Ambrose. And Sally is the Head of Marketing and Visitor Experience at Chatsworth, which has played host to a wide variety of film and television productions, including The Duchess, Peaky Blinders, and of course that perennial favourite, Pride and Prejudice. Hello, Sally. Hello, it's great to be here. I'm going to start then with a question for Julian Nell, and that is that you have both worked in a wide variety of historic houses, both in front of the camera and behind it. So perhaps, you know, it's, it's one of those probably very difficult questions, but also easy. And that is, which has been your favourite and why? Julie, let's start with you. I would say my favourite place to shoot was Castle Howard, and that was for a variety of reasons. We used to visit that house when I was younger, and it, so it has a sentimental attachment to me. And then when I read the script, which was episode six of Bridgerton, I just knew that it was the perfect location for the Duke's father, who was a sinister figure, kind of looming scary presence and one of the reasons why it was my favorite place to shoot was because we spent over two weeks there which is quite unusual and we got to know every aspect of the house we got to know the people that worked there really well and it's uh it was it was a fantastic experience and i think that clearly shows in in the productions that you made from it uh, Nell, how about you i would have to say harewood house is my favorite we just we filmed there a great deal shooting Victoria and because of that I became quite familiar with it and it just kind of started to feel like home from home really and we got to know the staff a fair bit and have a good relationship with them. Also what people might not know is that a lot of filming is waiting, you're waiting around quite a lot so Harewood House actually has a vast plethora of activities for the public when it's open to the public and I found myself when I was waiting around between scenes, enjoying these activities. So I would go and I'd walk around the bird garden where you can see all these beautiful tropical birds. I'd be off climbing trees, much to the annoyance of the costume department. And even I once went in the adventure playground in full Victorian-made garb. And (laughs) I went on the zip wire and I suddenly realised halfway through the sky that I might be caught in the back of a shot and there would just be this really bizarre... Victorian maid swinging through the air in the back of a shop but it was one of the reasons that I loved Howard House. I have to say that that's an image which we'd love to capture somewhere that would be just (laughs) wonderful if only if only. Uh, Okay so our first kind of set of questions is really about why why do we film in historic houses and I think it's particularly relevant in a world where technological advances mean that we can create not just houses but indeed whole planets through CGI or we can build highly accurate sets in studios. So why do we keep on coming back to filming in these places? Julie? I, there's nothing like shooting in a historic house. And believe it or not, we even have those out here in Los Angeles, although they wouldn't be historic by UK standards. It's absolutely wonderful out here to shoot at a place where, you know, Charlie Chaplin used to eat. There's a place called Musso and Frank's out here where I've shot. And then in the UK, you could never build these houses. It's not practical to build them, even in CGI terms, to build them if you want to go back and keep using them frequently. 
So uh, that's my reasoning. It's, there's a, there's a, an atmosphere that's captured and it invigorates the actors. I think now, do you agree? Definitely, absolutely. There's just nothing like the real thing for us actors, having to make believe that you are wherever you are and you're in whatever time the period drama is set in when you've got a lighting guy just there and sound crew and cameras in your face. The bonus of actually being in a real historical place just helps transport you there for sure. So it's in a way, it's a, it's a bit like a kind of an aid to method acting. You can get yourself really into character by, by being in the place. Absolutely. That is kind of the main challenge with playing a period character is bridging that gap between how we today behave and interact and how people back then would have behaved and interact. It's just that little bit further of a distance to go when you're playing a character. And, you know, as much as costume helps with that, there is a tiny part of your brain that is aware this costume looks like a period costume, but in fact, it was made for me. It's new. And location is, there's no artifice. It's the real deal. There's that specific smell that you get in old houses of the stone floors and the polished wood. And it's just so evocative and so useful for really transitioning into that time period. I guess the ability for houses to transport viewers to a different period is clearly a huge attraction. But there are times when they need to be moulded to create the perfect set. So, Julie, how exactly do you make sure that the real-life locations used in, in Bridgerton portray the fictional locations that are in the script? Well, with Bridgerton specifically, we really wanted a, a fairy tale world. And it's, it's interesting, there's actually not very much of Regency England left. Uh, and we scoured the UK looking for Grosvenor Square, because obviously we couldn't use the real Grosvenor Square because it's a traffic jam most of the time and so we were scouring and scouring and then one day the production designer and I were standing in the middle of a of a Regency Square in Bristol and we looked at each other and we just thought this isn't the fairy tale that we want so what we decided to do was to create Grosvenor Square in post-production so we combined two houses one was the Ranger's house in Blackheath which I used to live next door to so we combined that house, which is a very warm, inviting, welcoming house with um, this is the museum on the Royal Crescent in Bath as the Featherington home. You can see it's kind of cold and foreboding. So we placed these houses opposite each other and we built in CGI the square and the logistics of doing this is really complicated. You have to get the continuity exactly right between the two houses, both in terms of time of day and then in terms of um, shooting, in terms of if you're going to shoot across something towards the other house, you have to transport all of the props, everything to each location. They're very far apart. And then in terms of creating the square itself, we had to do a drone shot, which was shot from the... Ex from the correct um, altitude and angle to be able to build the whole square in post. So, I mean, that, it doesn't bear thinking about it, <laughs> but we, we think about continuity in the sense that you have continuity of actors in a particular scene, but here you have to have continuity between different, different properties and, and a CGI property. It sounds incredibly complicated. Yeah, it is scary. I always think that directing is a bit like putting together a jigsaw puzzle and you always are worried that there's going to be a key piece of that jigsaw puzzle missing when you get in post. That's why I do a lot of previs. I do a lot of storyboarding, especially when you're creating this romantic 
landscape that is a little bit hyper real. What I'm hearing is that actually a lot of the time there's nothing better than the real thing, which is music to my ears as a, a heritage conservation person. And now I know that you've worked at Wentworth Woodhouse, which coincidentally is a World Monuments uh, watch site from 2016, so one that we've supported. And of course, uh, you've already mentioned Harewood House in Yorkshire many times. Does it feel a little bit like going back to a second home to go to these places so frequently? Yeah, it definitely does. It's funny, with Wentworth, I, I had such a different experience working there on Victoria and then another show that I did called The Irregulars, which has just come out on Netflix. On Victoria, I obviously played a maid and my experience of working at Wentworth was kind of in the outbuildings and the stables, transforming those outbuildings into sort of a really Dickensian, grimy version of London. And then in The Irregulars, I actually play a princess. So I got to film in the beautiful big part of the house. I once um, went exploring around the house. I had some time to kill and I said, can I have a bit of a wander around the house? And the custodians very kindly said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I found this room that was purely made up like a child's bedroom, perfectly all preserved, like the Marie Celeste toys and a quilt on the bed and everything was sort of perfect, whereas all the other rooms were quite dilapidated and disused. And uh, I went back to the custodian and said, has someone else been filming here? Because there's a room that's sort of perfectly all made up. And they said, no. And I was like, oh, my goodness, it's it's a ghost. <laughs> it seemed like the most hauntedly perfect room. So, yeah, Wentworth House definitely has a slightly sort of maybe spirity vibe, for want of a better phrase. <laughs> I should say, Nell, congratulations on your elevation to princess. So I think much. that's that's that's, uh, that's <laughs> you're very welcome. And I, I guess a kind of follow up question from that is that these houses can tell both the the upstairs story and the downstairs story. Do you find there's any kind of difference in terms of how you behave? Does the house kind of evoke a, a different acting style? How does that work? It definitely does. When you're in the costume of a princess with your sort of beautiful big gown, I found myself carrying myself taller and sort of feeling that confidence from within. But what was really strange was that the crews on these shows who knew me as Nell out of costume treat you differently when you're in a sort of low status costume versus being in a high status costume. So funny enough, in Victoria, even though my character was much more regularly featured in the show, because I played a maid you know, there's this sort of casualness of like, oh, hey, Nell, there's Nell, whatever. And then on the irregulars, I'm playing a princess. And I, I wasn't in the show that much, but I just sort of had this sort of hushed awe wherever I went because people sort of felt that I somehow was the princess. It definitely kind of infected even the, the modern day uh, mood of the crew and how they treated me. I think people that's a sign around. of good acting as well. Oh, thank you. That's a sign <laughs> I of good acting. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Julie, uh, just picking up on the, the point that that the same house can look different on film depending on the director's choices. So lots of the locations in Bridgeton, for example, have been seen on screen before. So I'm thinking particularly of Wilton House, which appeared in The Crown uh, as Buckingham Palace. How do you make Wilton House fit the tone of Bridgerton? I know. When we were talking about this yesterday, you were shocked to hear that I had never watched The Crown. <laughs> and I was not really aware of how extensively Wilton House had been used as Buckingham Palace when I chose it as a key location for Bridgerton. However, uh, since I did watch The Crown after coming back and after editing, and I was really surprised and I realised that you wouldn't necessarily know that it was the same location because the styles of the shows are 
completely different. In Bridgerton, again, we were going for this fairy tale world, slightly heightened reality. I was using very wide lenses. There was Atmos in the air, which I don't think they would ever use in The Crown. So Atmos is, it feels a bit like smoke. It's a very specific type that won't damage the architecture in any way. So it just feels very different. In The Crown, they tended to use kind of slightly longer lenses and they had more defined shots. Whereas I was hoping to capture the grandeur of the occasion to place Daphne at the heart of it and the intimidation that she was feeling. So it's kind of how you use the house as well as um, the house itself. It sounds like the amount of choices that you have to make, clearly it's not just a case of setting up with a camera and, and filming someone in a house. There's a whole range of other choices that you have to make as directors and producers to bring this to life, and that's the art of it. Yes, because you, you're given only limited timing in these houses. Time is money. My experience is you really have to know how you're going to shoot it before you get there, and you have to have made all the key decisions well in advance. Okay, Uh, Sally, uh, you're Head of Marketing and Visitor Experience at Chatsworth, which has played host to a a wide variety of productions. How do you choose which productions you actually allow to film? Well, first of all, we absolutely love period dramas. Um, They really bring the house and the garden to life in, in, in such a magical, splendid way. And everybody just loves watching the filming where they can and being extras also, if that's possible. But we do love filming at Chatsworth. And the, the main thing for us is we will really consider whether we can do it. You know, can we accommodate the, the film crew, the timings? We do flex as well, but we, we haven't done anything from a period drama point of view for quite a while um, because we were very heavily used in terms of Pemberley for Pride and Prejudice and also for Death Comes to Pemberley. And of course, it's, shooting is not always about the house itself. These estates are, are made up of extensive land and beautiful landscapes that can be used in all manners of production. So I assume Chatsworth has been used in that way as well. We had the James Bond Lotus Esprit, which was a submarine car. And that was from the 1977, The Spy Who Loved Me. And that came and drove down our main drive because it doesn't have a road licence and it was filmed for Top Gear. And also we use our quarry. Well, it's, it's great that you welcome such a wide range of films and television shows. Uh, but how do you manage productions like this, particularly when you know, we know that you receive literally hundreds of thousands of visitors every year? And let's not forget, it's still the home of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire and their family. How do you balance that? It is quite tricky to balance, but we do have times of the year when we're not open to the public in the house. So those are opportune moments. Um, We would never close down everything, I'm sure, but you never know. But uh, I wouldn't envisage we would because we want to be open for visitors. The other things are we film through the night. So, of course, we have to check with the family because if they're around and it's not going to be good fun for them if they're in the house and we were filming the Bollywood film with lots of dance scenes and music and it would have been pretty loud for them in the house overnight. So we we can do that, but also there are so many other areas around the estate that we can use and not always focus, like you say, just on the house. Just to jump in, I remember one of my favourite scenes we ever shot was actually in the in the grounds of Howard, I think, and we shot on a boat on the lake. 
And it's this beautiful landscape. I think it was designed by Capability Brown and it was just so picturesque and we filmed on this tiny little rowboat and then we had a picnic by the side of the lake with you know parasols and strawberries and cream and it was I was basically in a dream because it was just so beautiful. With working with these historic buildings there must be a kind of weight of responsibility particularly for filmmakers coming into these very precious buildings with their precious contents and so you must always Julia I'm thinking particularly of you be concerned that something in the house might get damaged or broken and therefore you too have to balance between uh, making the film and actually acknowledging the 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 house has to look after its property and I know that there was maybe a bit of tension at Castle Howard when you were filming particular scenes Yes, Castle Howard is is fairly well known, I guess, now for the bedroom scenes in Bridgerton. And um, when we're shooting those scenes um, on set anyway, there's a there's a rule, as Nell will know, of it being a closed set. So everybody who is superfluous to the scene has to leave and all the monitors are closed down and only absolutely essential personnel remain in the rooms. And so the room monitors... I was so surprised, would not leave the room. And, and I was saying, but this is a closed set. And there's, but yes, it might be a closed set, but we can't let you stay in the room alone to, to potentially damage the room. So we all, that was a bit of a learning process for all of us. And there was a one particular point when Reggae was getting carried away on one of the historic beds and the room monitor had to go up to him and say, could you take it easy on the bedposts, please? Sally, I know you've got similar experience. It's quite interesting listening to it from that (laughs) side um, because we did have some filming of a love scene and I did ask about this love scene and um, we did a little bit of tweaking. But having said that, when it was actually being filmed, it was filmed when the house was open, but the Regency guest bedrooms were, were closed, which is where the filming was taking place. And my colleague Steph, and the room monitor was called Ellen at the time, we had to uh, remove the the bedding. We had to remove everything on top of the desk and they brought things for the desk because they swept it upwards rather than sweeping it downwards so that it didn't break anything. It was uh, very passionate. There was a bit of sort of, you know, bumping into things and throwing on the bed. But the bed actually had a foam piece not the original mattress with two channels that were cut out at the headboard and at the foot so that um, they didn't actually touch the silk on the on the headboard or on the bottom of the the foot place at the bottom of the bed uh, in case they were going to rip it and the room monitor Ellen at the time had to sit there at a certain level and make sure that everything was as it should be and um, my colleague Steph did tell me when they were in there it was quite something because it happened about six or seven times if, if not longer over a period of about four three to four hours and you could hear uh, they were you know you could hear the director speaking and giving direction because music was played over the scene so it was absolutely fascinating but in hindsight we probably might have done that a different time in the day I might add it's reassuring as an actor to hear that if there is a room monitor in the room when doing a love scene they're not looking at you they're just looking at the set the bed (laughs) the soft furnishings just making sure everything's fine you don't even need to worry about being looked at it's all good (laughs) (laughs) different perspective on things entirely yeah yeah 
Uh, of course, inevitably things are going to go wrong. So are there any occasions when you've either got very, very nervous or things have gone wrong? I'll just dive in here. I would say the crews are very respectful of the houses On in general. There was a moment when we were shooting in the assembly rooms at Bath, and I don't know if this is actually true or not, but we were told that the chandeliers in the ballroom were worth £5 million each. And I'd asked for these chandeliers to be lowered so that they could be part of the sequence and we could shoot across them. We had a technocrane in that room, and the technocrane was swooping down very, very close to these chandeliers. Now, I had total trust and faith in the Technocrane operator because he's a very long-time collaborator of mine and I know how good he is. But still, when I saw the crane moving past uh, literally an inch from the chandelier down to the dancers below, I was I did have a difficult moment. <laughs> When you're in period costume and often you have really big skirts, your spatial awareness completely changes because you're suddenly taking up more space than you're used to taking up and you can sort of spin round to reach for your water bottle or something and find that your skirts have kind of swayed a thing that you haven't been aware of. But nothing's ever gone wrong. The closest thing that we had to going wrong was in the first series of Victoria, there was a storyline where Buckingham Palace became infested by rats and we had 20 live rats on set, which wasn't fun for me. I don't, I'm not a fan. And they were on set and then the animal handler rounded them up at the end and he only counted 19. And there was a horrible half an hour where we couldn't find the missing rat, which was a bit tense. <laughs> but you found, we it. Did you in found the end. it in the end. We did in the end. So no harm thank done. Thank goodness, thank goodness. To the rat either. Uh, <laughs> no rats or harm. Excellent. Another challenge that can arise after the release of a television show or a film is that a house becomes associated with a successful production and you, you often see a huge increase in visitor numbers which follow. Yes, absolutely. In 2005, with uh, Pride and Prejudice, there were a lot of people who came on the back of the of the film. And of course, film tourism is, is, is so popular and people still visit Chatsworth today. Some of them dressed as uh, Lizzie Bennett, some of them just wanting to be in the spot where she stood. It is fantastic that it still you know continues today, but it's because it's such a classic, you know, in terms of um, Jane Austen's book, that it will continue, I think, just forever at being part of Pemberley at Chatsworth. We've had lots of visitors turn up because of a documentary series we had in 2012. And for that, actually, it was wonderful because it it reached audiences who perhaps wouldn't have come to Chatsworth before. And they perhaps weren't aware of necessarily how to engage in um, asking people about a certain work of art. They may have felt lacking in confidence in certain things and perhaps that television documentary really enabled them to come and visit and to have a conversation, whether it was about the tablecloth, you know, that would constantly needed to be kept, you know, pristine and, and iron smooth, etc., or the laying of the table. And it just gave them a way in to have fantastic conversations. The other thing that is quite entertaining, and this is the Mr. Darcy Bust that we 
at the time, John Oliver, who is what was called the controller then, he got it signed in the contract that we would be able to have the bust after the filming. And literally, it does sit now in the Orangery gift shop at the end of the house with please do not kiss sign, as you see <laughs> on the screen, because people do kiss Mr. Darcy in the Orangery. Well, Maybe well COVID I, I can will take your. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> I'm sure it will have done. Uh, I can take your your Mr. Darcy, Sally, and I can raise you one because in a previous life I used to work for the National Trust in the Northwest, and just across the Peak District from Chatsworth is Lime Park. Lime Park was actually a Pemberley in the television series uh, Pride and Prejudice, the one with Jennifer Earle and Colin Firth. And there you can see uh, the property making the very most of the fact that Colin Firth emerged from the lake virtually shirtless. The, the thing about Lime Park is that when the television show came out, the visitor numbers went from something like 33,000 to over 90,000. So it can have that kind of impact. At Lyme, as I'm sure at Chatsworth, those properties can deal with it they, because they are big enough. Lyme itself was a, a party house. It's more problematic when you have a very small property. And, and the one which I can think of is uh, Hilltop in the Lake District, which is Beatrix Potter's house. And it, it was the focus of a film starring Renny Zellweger, Miss Potter, uh, the thing about Hilltop is that it's it's small, it's tiny, and it's approached by in a little village through tiny narrow lanes. So it already gets 100,000 visitors. If you added on top of that the people who come because of Miss Potter, then you actually create quite a difficult problem. And part of the, the art of managing these places is actually how you deflect people, how you send people to different places, how you get them to go at different times, or indeed how you manage disappointment. One of the other interesting things about Hilltop, it's worth mentioning, is that it's a property which is very much loved by the Japanese audience because many of them of a certain generation learnt English from Beatrix's books. And so I was wondering, Sally, in the same way that Hilltop has those different segments, do you find that different audience segments come to Chatsworth depending on the different productions which are made there? Yes, absolutely. There's a huge following for Pride and Prejudice, both in the United States, but also in China. Um, and some of that is to do with a sense of romance and, and, and the history and the heritage. But some of it also is to do with the fact that it's also on reading lists as well in, in schools. So it, they kind of grow up with it. And the Chinese trans in Mandarin, the tra translation of Chatsworth actually is Mr. Darcy's house which is um, something that people find qu quite funny because actually I think it was very similar for Blenheim as well. It's what they associate it with rather than a literal translation. But we do choose um, sometimes what we want to f you know, have filmed here based on different demographics, different audiences and trying to appeal to a, a, you know, a really broad range of um, potential visitors because if we can connect with them, that's the most important thing for us. 
Now, the Duchess here, there's incredible stories about this as well. I spoke to my predecessor uh, was in, involved in, in this one, particularly Simon Seligman, and he said that he actually spent time with Kira Knightley showing her letters from Georgina, the, you know, all the things at the archive so she could really get a sense of you know, Georgina's personality and, and, and start to really I say, live, that, live the character. And she was very famous at that time, um, in Pride of Prejudice, less so. And uh, there's some wonderful stories, again, about people wanting to have the first photograph of her in her dress with the wig and the hat looking amazing. And as basically having spotters on the roof trying to stop, you know, journalists and others with cameras, like taking photos and selling it. It was the security was intense, I believe. Yep, I have a I have a story about that as well. When we were shooting in Bath, there was a, a it was very strictly locked down in terms of the photographs that you could take uh, that would give away any location. But people did take pictures of I don't know a pavement or a wall and posted them to social media. And there were in Brazil, there's a huge fan base for the Bridgerton series, and people were flying in. <laughs> from Brazil to come and watch the shoot because they managed to kind of geolocate where we were and just flew, uh, just got on the next plane and, and came. And it was just, I've never experienced anything like that. So it is, it's fascinating, isn't it, in the way that film and television actually opens up these new audiences in, in different parts of the world, which you, you, you can't possibly imagine how those connections are made, but they are made. So it's a wonderful vehicle, a medium for, I, I suppose, engaging with heritage. I took a picture of a carpet once in Hackney Empire, and somehow they matched it with my assistant's picture of the same carpet, and they figured out it was the Hackney Empire I mean, it was just, wow. it's like detective work. You just never know what's going to happen, <laughs> do you? You really don't. TV shows and films gain a sense of authenticity and grandeur from filming in historic houses. But there's also the benefit that we're sort of touching on at the moment from being featured on the screen. Film tourism for us is, is huge in terms of, you know, Pride and Prejudice. And I think... That's great because it's also really good for the local uh, visitor economy and the amount of people who do, you'll know, John, the Pride and Prejudice tours, they probably come to Chatsworth and go to Lyme because they're so close together in, in, in geography. The other thing that filming does for us, as well as reaching more people, audiences and increasing the awareness of, you know, you know how beautiful the landscape and the house is and, and what a visit could be like, it's also the fact that there is some income on some of the filming that we, we take part in. Not all of it, but some of them, yes. And the films tend to be more lucrative, you know, in terms of, you know, income for the Chatsworth House Trust. And the Chatsworth House Trust has a really long list of projects for conservation, restoration and basically it's endless so all the the money that goes into the Chatsworth House Trust is basically spent on preserving Chatsworth for future generations but as I say those are the main reasons why we do it apart from the fact we love it and sometimes it's fun and exciting especially on period dramas I'd, I'd say almost always from us looking outside looking in for definite I also think there's something 
really interesting about how what we can learn from people who make television and who make films as really them being master storytellers. And I recall there was a production called The Mill, which was based at Quarry Bank Mill, another National Trust property in northwest England, which was all about a 19th century mill and the, the, the workers and the mill owners. And apart from creating a completely fabricated graveyard, which was made out of foam uh, gravestones and a completely new building, one of the things which I was fascinated was, was how they retained or, or, or created the magic of a place so that it looked early 19th century. So one of the things they did was to put down on a tarmac road, which wouldn't be 19th century, they put down sort of carpets of fake cobbles and sets and covered it with horse and cow manure. And actually the sense of loss when that fake cobbles went was, was really palpable. So it gets you to think about different ways of interpreting and ensuring the magic of historic houses is truly retained. One of the things about World Monuments Fund is that our goal is to show people that heritage isn't just about bricks and mortar, but is in fact part of a, a wider conversation about culture. These buildings are extraordinary examples of history and architecture. And indeed, I, I believe that they are the works of art in themselves. And the popularity of period dramas shows how heritage has a much wider appeal than one might think. These places are not just for academic history buffs or people who collect historic houses. The period dramas show us that there's a whole world of people who are fascinated by these. I think a big part of it, and I say this as well as a fan of period dramas, is escapism. It's a wonderful, sumptuous world that we can completely lose ourselves in. And I think that that has been a really important thing for people. And I do also think that it is just a really human way to connect with history and I think that people sort of need that because it creates a sense of you know humanity that is a consistent thread throughout all of time you know love is love and jealousy is jealousy and all those emotions that people feel we've always felt and I think that that's a sort of really beautiful and important thing that we are reminded of through period dramas. Would you say that acting in period dramas and visiting these places, that's, that's made you more interested in heritage and history? Oh, for sure. Definitely. Uh, you can't help but sort of dive in completely into the history of places where you, where you visit to film. And it's such an honour and privilege that it's part of my job that I get to go to these incredible places that I otherwise might not get to. I, I just wanted to kind of wrap up this session by saying that the film industry and the heritage sector are often serving the same goal, and that is, as I've said before, telling stories that entertain and capture the imagination and therefore make people engage and feel close to and care about uh, heritage. World Monuments Fund is a champion for heritage, both in its conservation and in showing people how engaging heritage can be. What's more, our work doesn't only focus on stately homes in the UK, which my team are particularly involved in, but we also work on projects across the world involving local communities in the restoration of sites of historical and cultural significance. And I just wanted to add that with our, our partners in New York have completed two UK government funded projects, one to restore the National Museum in Taiz in Yemen, and you can imagine that's no mean feat considering the ongoing conflict that's taking place there. And then the, the second project 
was the uh, graduation of 43 students in Lebanon, where we've been training them to become conservation stonemasons. These students are both Syrian refugees and local Lebanese. And the idea of the project is that you give people the skills to restore the war-damaged heritage of the region. And most importantly, at the same time, you help find them employment and livelihoods and indeed hope. But what I think also is entirely relevant is that moving pictures, the very thing that we've been talking about, can treble, quadruple, that millions of words can be essentially told through the the moving image. So I was wondering, particularly for Julie, do you think there's a role for filmmakers in telling these kinds of stories? Is, Is that an important, is that something that we can do? Well, I i mean, that's a question for you. <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated by this. I think it's uh, just, uh, I was blown away when I heard of the work that you're doing, particularly as somebody who's toured refugee camps. And the, the things that always come out of those uh, tours are people want work and they want to educate their children. And so you're providing such a key kind of component of the meaning of existence really so you know I just I hope I think we as filmmakers should stand with the World Monument Fund and um, just do you know work with you however it's useful. As Julie knows I will definitely be in touch with her after this particular program to take up that offer. (laughs) Uh, Right we have a little bit of time to to go to the Q&A which you've been posting Uh, so I'm going to pick out a number of these And the first one is, uh, how much time does it take in preparing these sets before they begin filming, especially with Bridgerton, since it looks like a very large-scale project? So how much time, and does it take a lot of preparation? That's a good question. And I would say it depends. So the interiors were built. That obviously took many months. But in a place like Castle Howard... I guess it depends on the level of work. So if we are taking up some of the massive carpets in the rooms, which we did, and refinishing the floors, which we did in several uh, locations, that's obviously a number of weeks work. But it's always a financial decision because, as Sally knows, (laughs) if you buy out a house or a part of a house in order to do work that you need for filming, that costs money so it's it's you're constantly juggling the finances versus the ambition so there's no one size fits all sometimes it's just a matter of days depending on the amount of work that there is to be done and then sometimes as I say when you have a large amount of work to do and a lot of furniture to move, it can take weeks. And I've got, I've got a similar question from Rita in Budapest. This is for Nell, and that is, Nell, do you research about the historic period or about the character that you're about to play, or do they just tell you how to behave? <laughs> um, no, I, I do research. I read, a, for Victoria, for example, I read a really useful book called Serving Victoria, which was actually a collection of diary entries by various members of the Buckingham Palace staff that worked for Queen Victoria, which was literally the most invaluable primary source for the part that I was playing. So that contained diary entries from, I think there was a butler who was writing diaries at the time, and then there was one of the governesses for the children, and it just provided this incredibly rich tapestry of sort of all the different downstairs elements of the house 
so yeah I tend to, I tend to try and be quite thorough because you never know what you'll stumble upon you might find out a tiny little detail that you can sort of hook onto and incorporate that into your characters in a life okay that makes perfect sense I've got a question now for for Sally do you feel that the story of Pride and Prejudice has become a part of the history of of Chatsworth and will it continue to be it's an interesting question. If you come to Chatsworth, you do feel as though, if you're a Jane Austen and a Pride and Prejudice fan, that you are at Pemberley. However, there are those who really, it completely passes them by, and it is it is Chatsworth. So it, it's one element. People have lots of different reasons for coming to Chatsworth, and everybody has their own version of it. And for those that love Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen, wonderful. I would say that uh, from the perspective of Lyme Park, which acted as Pemberley, we've got to think of these historic houses as actors themselves. That's definitely part of the, the, the history of that place. It's kind of imbued in it. So I think, yeah, the answer is yes, uh, in, in a positive way, but also learning from the, the, practical, the practical reality of what filming means. I've got another one for, uh, for Julie, and that is... Would you geolocate a scene in a wrong site for practical financial reasons, i.e. using an English house for a French house? Does this throw up any specific problems? That sounds quite technical. Yes. I mean, we do it all the time. So you will shoot... I mean, I've shot Austin for LA. I've shot Pittsburgh for New Jersey. I've shot, it, it goes on and on. You, you're always doubling. And again, I hate to come back to this. It's usually for a financial reason. It depends on where the tax breaks are. I know Prague is used a lot. So yes, is the simple and straightforward answer to that. Uh, and another one for Nell. Uh, Nell, as an actor, how do you prepare for the role in terms of dressing, etc.? So I think it's quite a practical one. I say, are there trailers near the house? Do you have to go far from the filming site after the shoot? What facilities are there for food and drink? So I guess the practicalities, how does that feel when you're in period dramas? I, w- I just wanted to say on the last question, we we cheated a house, Harlexton Manor. Is it called Manor? Harlexton House. One of the photos in the slides was Harlexton House for France. And what was so strange was that the house felt like France. So I think those cheat locations, it's often because the atmosphere there feels so correct. And the week that we spent there, I felt like I was on holiday in France. But to answer the costume question, I actually became, I pride myself on being so adept with a corset now. I can do up my own corset and lace it and unlace it all behind my back because I've done so much period drama. So the costume girls normally at the end of the day come into your trailer and like, de-rig you out of all these layers and the crinolines and all that stuff and I can now do it like this so I'm very proud of that fact <laughs> I can get myself dressed in undressed in period garb a, a, a transferable life skill I think now that's what that's called I know like if I stopped acting they'd, they'd <laughs> love me in the bank it'd be so useful <laughs> <laughs> they, they, just to chime in um, there's, there's usually a, a small city almost called a base camp which is parked uh, usually within walking distance of the house. Yeah. And that's where all the... And sometimes when we're filming, like, outside in the woods or something, you just have a little prop-up tent or pagoda where you have to do all your changing, sort of, just in a little tent. <laughs> but they always bring it to you. They make it, they make it easy for us actors. Sally, one for you is, are there any particular rooms not open to the public that you are not allowed to be filmed in? I... 
it's, that's quite a tricky question because it depends what it is. But where the family live, I wouldn't ask because it's their home, uh, essentially. And there are so many other rooms in the house anyway that are absolutely spectacular. So um, I'm sure we could accommodate whatever it was. And actually, I think there was a comment made about the size and scale of rooms. We're really fortunate at Chatsworth to have some pretty large rooms. So um, from a filming perspective, I think we probably have interiors that uh, would fit the bill um, anyway, without even looking in terms of rooms that um, others perhaps wouldn't see. I, I have to wrap up now. And to be honest, we could be talking for uh, another couple of hours or we could run this over another a few sessions without any question of a doubt. It's been absolutely fascinating. So my thanks have to go to Julianne Robinson, to Nell Hudson and Sally Ambrose for your brilliant insight in today's event. And of course, to Intelligence Squared for their help in putting it all together. Thank Much you. applause to, to all three of you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And just to kind of wrap up finally, if you'd like to know more about World Monuments Fund, indeed, if you'd like to support us and you'd like to support places like Chatsworth, please do visit our website. We need your support in terms of making sure that these magnificent buildings continue to be magnificent in the future and continue indeed to be at the heart of the local communities that live, visit uh, and work in and around them. So that's really important to us and hopefully to you. So please join us, sign up to our newsletter, donate if you wish to, that would all be greatly appreciated. It just remains for me to say once again, thank you very much to our wonderful panellists. Thank you everyone else for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it and hopefully we'll see you again at another event. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. This event was originally produced by Faye Adegbite, and editing was by executive producer Rowan Slaney. And I'm your host, Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.